You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Your Brain on Facts back catalog. I'm your host, Moxie Labouche. A little bit of context before the episode begins. For these early episodes, I was still learning to edit the audio. Some of them sound bad because I didn't edit enough, and then some sound worse because I edited too much. Please take the audio quality with a grain of salt and understand that it was growing pains. And now, our feature presentation. There is an age-old saying, For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the message was lost. For want of the message, the battle was lost. For want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. Small things can have reverberating effects on history, both good and bad. In the year 1453, the great walled city of Constantinople fell. It had withstood sieges for 1,100 years. It had held off fire from then-state-of-the-art cannons for weeks. The Byzantines had even thwarted soldiers trying to tunnel under the wall. Ottoman Turks were finally able to overrun the great city, because someone left the door open. One of the many gates in the 14 miles of wall had been left open one night, and the Ottomans flooded in, killing Emperor Constantine in the battle and bringing an end to the Eastern Roman Empire. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. It was a freezing Christmas night in Trenton, New Jersey, during the Revolutionary War. English Colonel Johann Rahl, commander of a mercenary infantry regiment of 1,400 Hessian soldiers from Germany, sat down to a good supper and an evening of entertainment. He and his men were celebrating their recent victories over George Washington's volunteer army and, of course, Christmas, safe from the bitter cold and pelting sleet inside a wealthy merchant's home that they had commandeered. They relaxed, safe in the assumption that no one in their right mind would try to cross the Delaware River at night in a blinding winter storm. Someone challenged Rawl to a game of chess, and before long he was deep in tactics and strategy. There was a knock at the door. An exhausted young messenger boy came in bearing a note from a loyalist farmer. It's important to remember that about one-third of colonists at the time still considered themselves to be British citizens and did not want the revolution. Rawl paid the boy little notice, took the note, and put it in his coat pocket without opening it. That mistake cost him and the war effort dearly. Two hours earlier and ten miles away, Washington's men had begun being ferried across the icy Delaware River. It took ten hours to get all 2,400 men across. The conditions were so adverse that five men froze to death. Then began the arduous march to Trenton in the dark. 
The plan was to attack from all sides before dawn, but they didn't arrive until 8 a.m. During the attack, which lasted only an hour, 40 German soldiers were killed, and the remaining 1,000 surrendered. Colonel Rall was mortally wounded. When his body was found, the unopened note warning of Washington's crossing was still in his pocket. If Rall had read it, he would surely have had his professional soldiers prepared. He'd allowed his pride and the weather to lull him into thinking his enemy was not a threat. Had he won that battle, he may very well have killed George Washington, James Madison, James Monroe, John Marshall, Aaron Burr, and Alexander Hamilton. The second most common question in alternate history circles, after what if Germany won World War II, is what if the South won the American Civil War? Two pieces of paper dropped in a farmer's field might have brought that about. Confederate General Robert E. Lee issued Special Order 191 during the Maryland Campaign. In the order, Lee divided his army, delineating the routes and roads to be taken and the timing for the units to reconvene. Adjutant Robert H. Chilton penned copies of the letter and endorsed them in Lee's name. Staff officers distributed the copies to various Confederate generals. General Thomas Stonewall Jackson in turn copied the document for one of his subordinates, Major General D. H. Hill, who was to exercise independent command as the rear guard. A Union soldier, one Corporal Barton Mitchell of the 27th Indiana Volunteers, found two pieces of paper bundled with three cigars as his unit marched across a farm in Maryland, an area recently vacated by Hill and his men after they had camped there. The order provided the Union Army with valuable information concerning the Army of Northern Virginia's movements and campaign plans. Upon receiving Lee's lost order, Major General George McClellan, leading the Union Army of the Potomac, proclaimed, Here is a piece of paper with which, if I cannot whip Bobby Lee, I will be willing to go home. He immediately moved his army in hopes of foiling Lee's battle plans. When Lee heard a copy of Special Order 191 was missing, he knew his scattered army was vulnerable and rushed to reunite its units at Antietam Creek near Sharpsburg. Lee's troops arrived tired, hungry, and many were sick. The Battle of Antietam would go down as the bloodiest battle of the Civil War. The casualties recorded as 23,000 men dead, wounded, which was often as good as dead, or unaccounted for over the course of the half-day battle. That's nearly 2,000 soldiers an hour, one every two seconds. When night fell, both sides ceased fire to gather their dead and wounded. The next day, Lee began the painstaking job of moving his ravaged troops back to Virginia. Here, some scholars argue, another solitary decision had far-reaching consequences. Despite having the advantage, McClellan allowed Lee to retreat without resistance. From his point of view, he'd accomplished his mission of forcing Lee's troops from Maryland and preventing a Confederate win on Union soil. President Lincoln, however, thought McClellan missed a great opportunity to potentially end the war three years earlier than it ultimately would. After the war-weary general repeatedly refused Lincoln's order to pursue Lee's retreating troops, Lincoln removed McClellan from command. If you paid the slightest bit of attention in high school history, 
You probably know that the event that launched World War I was the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria. The assassination plot was formed by members of Young Bosnia, a splinter group of the Black Hand Society, whose goal was to unite all of the territories with a South Slavic majority not ruled by either Serbia or Montenegro. They were incensed that the head of the oppressive state would come to Sarajevo for a parade on the anniversary of the Battle of Kosovo, which was one of their main rallying cries. Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife passed through the city, never knowing that they were driving past would-be assassins in an open-topped car. Of the six young men who had conspired to kill the Archduke, two lost their nerve. One took pity on Duchess Sophie, the couple was also on holiday for their anniversary, and one had equipment failure. Nigelko Kukrinovic, however, would not waste his chance. As the limo passed over a bridge, he hurled the bomb he was carrying. Perhaps from adrenaline, he threw too hard, and the bomb sailed over the target car, detonating the car behind it, wounding twenty people. The Archduke's car sped off. The last man stationed along the route, too far from the bridge to know what had happened, was Gavrilo Pinsip. Seeing that the Archduke was alive and his comrades had failed, Princip became disheartened and slunk away. He would not become an immortal hero to like-minded people that day, and he went to a café, perhaps for a consolation snack. What Princip could not know was that shortly after the explosion, Ferdinand ordered the motorcade to go to the hospital where the wounded were being treated. The car was driven by his regular chauffeur, not a local, and the change in route caused him to get lost, turning down a street they were never supposed to be on, directly in front of the café where Princip stood eating. The driver was in the midst of turning the car around when Princip leapt up and fired two shots that would ultimately take over 18 million lives. What became of Krabrinovic, you may ask? He had to escape quickly, so he leapt over the side of the bridge into a river only a few inches deep. One leg was too badly injured for him to run, so in a defiant, you'll-never-take-me-alive act, he swallowed the cyanide pill each members of young Serbia had been given. This was when he learned that suicide pills are not the sort of thing to scrimp on. Rather than dying, he sat on the riverbank vomiting as the police came to arrest him. One of the most murderous dictators of the 20th century, Joseph Stalin, had actually been an ally of the United States during World War II. The Grand Alliance, as it was called, was at best an uneasy union. It was an alliance born from the need to stop Adolf Hitler and the Nazi Party from taking over Europe. American President Franklin Roosevelt didn't trust Stalin, and the U.S. rejected the growing list of demands from the USSR between 1943 and 45. The USSR hadn't forgotten America's participation in the armed intervention against the Bolsheviks during the Russian Civil War, as well as its long refusal to recognize the Soviet Union as a legitimate country. Stalin was rightfully feared at home and abroad. The actual death toll of his regime will never truly be known. No one disputes that it runs into the millions. People disappeared by the hundreds and thousands, some sent to gulags, prison camps where they would be worked or starved to death if they didn't freeze first, while others were executed on the spot. Stalin's senior officers, their homes and offices bugged by the secret police, 
were all terrified of him. He refused to trade prisoners of war with Germany to get his own son back, a son he had mocked after a failed suicide attempt by saying he can't even shoot straight. Stalin even had his doctor jailed as a British spy for suggesting he take things a little easier in his later years. This and one other incident brought down an absolute tyrant. Stalin's personal guards were as frightened of him as anyone else. He had given them explicit instructions that he was not to be disturbed except in the case of a state emergency. The threat of death was clearly implied. So it came to pass, on March 2, 1953, that the guards did not go into Stalin's private quarters, even as the clock ticked past the hour that he would normally rise. By the time one of them mustered the courage to open Stalin's bedroom door that evening, Stalin had been laying on the floor, incapacitated by a stroke, for as long as 16 hours. He died a few days later, sealing his chapter of the often brutal history of Russia. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history? If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now? The history podcast that's not your history class. Part of the Area of Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir to zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. To the east, in the Pacific theater of World War II, Another tiny detail changed the course of history for every occupied continent in the world. Most public school education and pop culture, such as video games and movies, focuses on the European battlefront, almost entirely ignoring the Pacific War. The best-known incident, the attack on Pearl Harbor, saw American casualties of over 3,500 airmen and sailors, along with the loss of two destroyers and nearly 200 aircraft. For the next six months, Japan dominated the Pacific skies with their A6M Zero fighters, winning nearly every battle against the less experienced American pilots in technologically inferior planes. Attacks and occupations of China, which began in the 1930s, killed between 15 and 20 million people. One out of every six American POWs taken after the fall of Singapore would die. 
It would take the loss of four aircraft carriers at the Battle of Midway, which saw ten Marines killed for every Japanese combatant, to begin to push the Japanese forces back. Held near Berlin in July of 1945, the Potsdam Conference was the last meeting of the Big Three Heads of State, American President Harry S. Truman, who had recently succeeded Roosevelt upon his death, Prime Minister Winston Churchill, and Soviet Premier Joseph Stalin. They established a Council of Foreign Ministers and a Central Allied Control Council for the administration of Germany. Although talks centered primarily on post-war Europe, the Big Three also issued a declaration demanding unconditional surrender from Japan. After their terms were translated into Japanese, they waited anxiously for the reply from Japanese Prime Minister Kantaro Suzuki. The terms included a statement to the effect that any negative answer from Japan would invite prompt and utter destruction. Newspaper reporters in Tokyo pressed the Prime Minister to say something about Japan's position. No formal decision had been reached, and Suzuki replied, Moksatsu. The word moksatsu, derived from the word for silence, can be interpreted in several different ways. Suzuki meant it as the press release standard, no comment. However, translators from media agencies in the West interpreted the word to mean Suzuki was ignoring the surrender demand, that it was not worthy of comment, and he was treating it with silent contempt. The Americans took this reported arrogance to mean that there could never be a diplomatic end to the war. The atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima ten days later. A mistranslation of a single word killed more than 70,000 people instantly, and 100,000 more died as a result of the destruction and radiation. Blame could be split between whoever decided to translate Moksatsu by one meaning without considering or denoting the alternatives, and the Prime Minister himself for using such an ambiguous term. Dealing with the press is often a prickly situation. The conclusion of World War II saw Germany and its capital of Berlin split into East and West sections, with the West, controlled by America, Britain, and France, being capitalist, and the East, controlled by the USSR, being communist. While we often refer to them as East and West Germany, their official names were the German Democratic Republic and the Federal Republic of Germany, respectively. Life in East Berlin was difficult, to say the least, with the Soviets draining resources from the economy as a form of war reparations, and the secret police with wiretaps and informants always listening for dissent or disloyalty. As much as 20% of the East German population fled to the West before the government began to build the infamous wall in 1961, putting up over 100 miles of brick wall and barbed wire fence in a single night. The wall would eventually include spike strips, guard towers, and even landmines, as well as the demolition of nearby buildings to stop people from escaping by jumping from high windows. Contrary to how you've probably pictured it, and how this reporter pictured it for about 20 years, the wall did not bifurcate the city, but instead went around West Berlin. This was because the capital city was entirely within the country of East Germany. The term for this is an enclave, a portion of a state or country surrounded by another state or country. A passport, which was hard to obtain, was required to go from one side to the other, and people had to pass through one of three heavily guarded military checkpoints 
designated Alpha, Bravo, and Charlie. Families were divided, and people lost their livelihoods because their jobs were on the other side of the wall. Much in the way of a prison, soldiers patrolled the wall and shot on sight anyone trying to go over, under, around, or through. While there were successful escapes in the nearly three decades the wall stood, many people lost their lives in the attempt. As time went on, the government began to grant people greater freedom of travel, but with near-prohibitive fees and paperwork requirements, though this did not deter people. By 1989, the Cold War had thawed significantly, and there were sweeping changes in Eastern Bloc governments. Protests for democracy, free elections, and greater personal freedom were gaining strength. The government tried to placate the citizens by making travel permits slightly easier to obtain. This was announced at a live press conference by Gunter Schabowski, a low-level official of the Socialist Unity Party of Germany. At the press conference, he read a list of sundry announcements, but one concerning passports caught the reporter's attention. Schabowski said, in effect, that every East German would now be able to get a passport and could go where they wanted, including to the West. A voice came from the back of the room, asking, When does it take effect? Schabowski, caught off guard by the sudden interest, flipped through his pages and tossed out his best guess. Ab sofort. Now. Immediately. This statement hit the airwaves like a match touching a fuse. The citizenry did not know, or care, that the rule was meant to go into effect the next day, with a litany of fine print and restrictions. Tens of thousands descended on Checkpoint Charlie and the other crossing points to West Berlin. The East German border police, surprised and severely outnumbered, with no idea what was happening and no orders on how to respond, eventually opened the gates. People poured through the checkpoint, while others on both sides began to climb the wall, sitting on top triumphantly. Someone swung a sledgehammer, and so the Berlin Wall, both the structure and what it stood for, came down. Germany was reunited less than a year later, and the Soviet Union dissolved soon after. This nation-changing moment could be viewed as a treatise on the importance of preparation, Schabowski had been given the memo shortly before the press conference, and had only skimmed it in the car on the way there. The single overarching characteristic of the Cold War, which held the world in a state of tension for over 40 years, was the imminent threat of a Third World War, one that would be fought not with planes and tanks, but with nuclear weapons. This extinction-level event nearly began on the morning of September 26, 1983. An alarm sounded in Serpakov 15, the secret command center outside Moscow where the Soviet military monitored its early warning satellites over the United States. The computer warned, Five Minutemen intercontinental ballistic missiles have been launched from an American base. The timing could hardly have been worse. Three weeks earlier, the Soviets had shot down a Korean Airlines flight after it entered Soviet airspace killing all 269 people on board, including a U.S. congressman. President Ronald Reagan had rejected calls for freezing the arms race, declaring the Soviet Union an evil empire. Soviet leader Yuri Andropov was obsessed by fears of an American attack. The critical link in the decision-making chain that day was one Lieutenant Colonel Stanislav Petrov, 
He was only two steps removed from the people who would advise Andropov to launch a retaliatory strike. His recommendation would have been taken with little or no second-guessing. For five agonizing minutes, Petrov tried to assess the information that flooded into him from computer screens, the telephone, and the intercom. Finally, he made his decision. The alert was probably a false alarm. He called headquarters and reported a system malfunction. If he were wrong, the first nuclear blasts would have been within minutes. What did he base this world-saving call on? His gut. He had never fully trusted the early warning system. Further, he suspected an attack that brazen would have involved more than five missiles. His decision was actually a breach of protocol, and disobeying orders was not something taken lightly by the Soviet military. A later investigation concluded that the Soviet satellites had mistakenly identified sunlight reflecting off clouds as the engines of the ICBMs. It would take some years before the incident came to light and people learned the name of the man who had quite possibly saved the entire world with a phone call. Petrov received no reward for his actions. This incident and other bugs in the missile detection system embarrassed his superiors and the influential scientists responsible for it. If he had been officially recognized, they would have to have been punished. He was reassigned to a less sensitive post and took early retirement, passing away at the age of 77 in May 2017. Going back to the middle of the Cold War, we have Hemingway, Eichmann, Stranger in a Strange Land, Dillon, Berlin, Bay of Pigs Invasion. The Bay of Pigs Invasion was a spectacular failure to invade Cuba by a brigade of former Cuban military officers backed by the CIA in April 1961. In an attempt to undermine the communist-leaning government of Fidel Castro, the members of the 1,400-man paramilitary Brigade 2506 launched their attack from their training base in Guatemala, landing at Playa Giron in the Bahia de Cochinos, which is Bay of Pigs in Spanish, of course. Overwhelmed by Castro's forces, the invaders surrendered less than three days later. But how did a small island nation rout American-backed forces? There were a number of mistakes and missteps, but arguably the linchpin error was that someone forgot about time zones. The original invasion plan called for two airstrikes against Cuban bases, with forces disembarking under cover of darkness for a surprise attack. The main force would advance across the island and set up a defensive position. The United Revolutionary Front, a rebel army of anti-Castro exiles, planned to send leaders to establish a provisional government, provided the Cuban population joined the invaders in overthrowing the regime. The first mishap occurred on April 15th, when eight bombers left Nicaragua to bomb Cuban airfields. The CIA had used obsolete World War II B-26 bombers, which missed many of their targets, and they had painted them to look like Cuban Air Force planes, though the ruse fell apart quickly when photos of the planes hit the newspapers. On April 17th, Brigade 2506, hampered by bad weather and insufficient ammo, landed at beaches along the Bay of Pigs and immediately came under heavy fire. Cuban planes strafed the invaders, sank two escort ships, and destroyed half of the exile's air support. Over the next 24 hours, Castro ordered roughly 20,000 troops to advance on the beach, and the Cuban Air Force continued to control the skies. 
As the situation grew increasingly grim, President Kennedy authorized an air umbrella at dawn on April 19th. Six unmarked American fighter planes took off to help defend the brigade's B-26 aircraft. But the B-26s arrived an hour late. They took off from Nicaragua, which was Greenwich Mean Time minus six, headed for Cuba, which is Greenwich Mean Time minus five. No one had accounted for the loss of that hour when the attack was scheduled. They were shot down by the Cubans, and the invasion was crushed later that day. The failure was a blight for the American government, but a boon for the Cubans. Revolutionary leader Ernesto Che Guevara actually thanked White House advisor and press writer Richard Goodwin for the attack six months later at a conference for the Americas. As Goodwin recorded in a memo declassified in the 1990s, Chi quote, went on to say he wanted to thank us very much for the invasion, that it had been a great political victory for them, enabled them to consolidate and transform them from an aggrieved little country to an equal. At least the invasion didn't happen on Daylight Savings Weekend, or who knows what could have happened. Oh, and if you started singing We Didn't Start the Fire when you recognize that opener, that's okay. It's been looping in my brain since I finished today's script. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. You can call it the butterfly effect if you want, or dominoes, or snowballing. By any other name, it shows that tiny, seemingly inconsequential things can have unbelievably far-reaching effects. An ignored note helped lose England the colonies, a mistranslation brought on the first nuclear strike, and a computer glitch could have killed us all. I'd like to take a moment to thank the people who have sent me messages after listening to the show. It's really gratifying to know that you're enjoying it. If you have a few seconds to spare, please leave a comment, a review, or a rating on whatever platform you're listening through. Not only does it obviously give me a big ego boost, but it helps with the algorithms and programs and behind-the-scenes stuff at those platforms to help more people find your brain on facts so they can enjoy it too. Thanks for listening, and thanks for spending part of your day with me. you find it hard to sleep at night then the calm cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long calm cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires all of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast calm cove is brought to you by the team behind sleep cove the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis meditation and stories so if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight search for calm cove on apple podcasts or spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night